This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network in East Asian Studies podcast series. I'm Subi Rautio, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I will be speaking with Charlotte Brookerman about her new book, Claiming Homes, Confronting Domicide in Rural China published by Bergen Books in October 2019. Charlotte Brookerman's new book is the works of years of research studying how Chinese citizens make themselves at home despite economic transformation, political rupture, and domestic dislocation in the contemporary countryside. Through her writing, she eloquently describes how villagers confront the planned and deliberate destruction of their homes, also known as domicide. Delving into the political, historical, economic, sensorial, and kinship claims to their homes, Charlotte's book is an insightful contribution to studies on contemporary China and anthropology, but also for anyone interested in domicide and more generally discussions on dispossession and dislocation. Charlotte, welcome to the program. Thanks. I'm really pleased to be here. Hi, Sylvie. We're pleased to have you as well. So let's start the discussion um, by perhaps you could first tell us and our audiences a bit about yourself. Um, How did you first get involved in anthropology in China? And how did you end up in your field site sweeping village in Shanxi province? So I actually studied um, anthropology already as an undergraduate um, at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London at SOAS. And um, during that time there, I took the regional ethnography course of China, and I was particularly fascinated of the um, sort of configuration of it being both um, a sort of capitalist center and also um, with this continued communist leadership. And it was that contradiction that really intrigued me, as well as the fact that I really enjoyed how the anthropology of China um, partly due to the um, hiatus that occurred in many of the studies during the Maoist period, um, had a very recent and very sort of vibrant uh, and emerging uh, academic field. And um, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I had a friend uh, from Hong Kong who told me that he was going to Beijing to study Mandarin. He's a, he's a Cantonese speaker. And I thought, great, what a great idea. And so I actually moved with him to Beijing and uh, did an intense year of language study. And upon my return to the UK, continued on with a master's um, at Oxford that then uh, led to the formulation of my PhD research. And I was very much interested in this intersection between homes, gender, generation, kinship in China. And I felt like this area had in some ways maybe because it was um because it was uh sort of dominated by um, structuralist theory and particularly Claude Lévi-Strauss um as well as sort of Bourdieu's Kabul house and so forth it had kind of been neglected in the anthropology of China because a lot of the theory that was coming from it was from an earlier age 
And so I thought this would be a really interesting uh, point at which to uh, begin doing research. And I remember that when I um, when I got to Shanxi, within weeks, I thought, well, definitely the structuralist idea of the house as a kinship structure does not um, does not uh, uh, fit here. But it led me down a lot of very interesting pathways in terms of thinking about people's everyday practices and uh, relations through these really um, um, everyday and practiced interrelations uh, in the home. Now, Shanxi itself as a choice of field site was um, was partly about that initial impulse. So I, I did as much research um, building up to the field work as possible, but um, in some ways, Shanxi was a little bit of a uh, black box. But some of the, the factors that I did know was that it had this very extensive architectural heritage that came from the 19th century when um, it was a banking and merchant hub in the Chinese context. And that these Shanxi merchants, um, although they traveled very widely throughout the world, um, especially um, in their um, money lending uh, and financial transaction business, built these extended sumptuous courtyard complexes in their rural homes. And this was something that I, you know, had found out beforehand, as well as that then, um, in the 20th century, it had been dominated by um, a particular warlord, that he had done a lot of redistribution um, in ways that sometimes resembled even the Soviet Union. But also that um, that a lot of um, villagers had come to live in these sumptuous courtyard houses as they were redistributed, um, both by that warlord and then um, uh, Yan Shishan, and then also subsequently during the Maoist era. So all of this deeply intrigued me, and I thought um, I would that this would might be an ideal site because you've got this um, architectural heritage that people are living in who have a very different relationship to their um, historical path, to issues of wealth and finance, as well as to labor and um, industrial labor in particular. And that was something maybe a little bit I underestimated uh, before actually getting access to the site was just how uh, strongly the local political economy was dominated by particularly energy sector because uh, Shanxi has a lot of coal deposits. And, um, and, and as luck would have it, that is also actually how I managed to get an in to my field site. Uh, so I, uh, it's, I spent quite a few months <laughs> trying to get access. It was not the easiest uh, feat. Um, partly because there, there were quite a lot of corruption scandals and so forth that happened in Shanxi. And I think it was in many ways not in the interest of that many local power holders to have a foreigner living there long term, especially in the countryside, which was my intended goal. But I, um, I became very lucky that through, um, through a professor in Beijing who had students uh, of sociology who were in Shanxi. I was sort of handed on to a librarian who then do, knew of a, um, a coal corporation that was trying to diversify its investment portfolio by developing tourism in the countryside in one of these sites that has these beautiful architectural buildings. And um, so 
I was introduced and we met and I discussed my my plans. And I think um, this particular um, uh, uh, energy um, uh, executive um, also sees himself as um, both, uh, you know, both um, sustaining and protecting important heritage, including intangible heritage, and also in fostering local development in diverse ways, also moving away from energy intensive uses of coal towards the service economy and so forth. I think he he really saw that there could be a um, there could be benefits to having me be there and study what was going on in the village. And I was given a very uh, generous, open um, field to go and live there and ask questions and and write what I found. And um, I think it's been a really great um, cooperation um, for me. Um, and I think also hopefully for them. Um, I did do some translation work for them in the earlier stages. Um, I mean, it also led to some uh, tensions, especially around my uh, intentions in the village uh, in the early days of field work, when people didn't really know me very well and they were not entirely sure why I was asking them so many questions about their own personal history, the history of their homes and their houses, um, particularly as they were becoming concerned that given what coal corporations and energy corporations generally do in Shanxi when they want to foster development is that they relocate villagers into new high rises. And this was a process that they were concerned about and ambiguous about, about how that would happen, what kind of compensation would happen, whether they would want to move at all. And actually that did happen in the subsequent years. That was several years after I had left the village. And all of this I, I've sort of laid out in the book, um, which of course took many years to write. Um, I've revisited the material many times, and I also revisited the village many times. And it's quite nice when I go back now, because in some ways it is also my um, Chinese home. Uh, even when I go on field work elsewhere, I, I have a very special uh, feeling of belonging in this particular village. So it's quite nice that that um, sort of comes together with the theme of the book. Oh, that's really that's really quite touching. And as an anthropologist myself, it's um it sounds um yeah that that sense of belonging into your field site, but also because that is kind of the theme of your book. Looking at um you look at from so many different themes, so many different angles. How how the people that you worked with and befriended um, form that sense of belonging. So it's really quite um, moving to hear that you also found that sense of belonging in the process. Um, some themes that you just brought up, I think, come out so clearly written in your in your book itself, especially in part one, where you delve into the historical and politi political relevance of how these lived spaces are allocated and sweeping cliffs, but also in Shanxi province more broadly. And I really enjoyed reading about how you trace these historical patterns um, to look at the distribution and redistribution of property and wealth across the region. By doing so, you're able to shift the reader's attention from perceiving China's uh, peripheral countryside as a homogenous space with a homogenous population to inst instead delve into the historically uneven trajectories of development in China. This adds to a much deeper level of understanding for the reader to consider what it means to be a peasant and contemporary China from the subject of claiming homes. 
Can you tell us um, a bit more about that? How does history and politics play in what you call confronting domicide in rural China today? So just now you gave us a really, um, really great understanding on the kind of historical relevance of where Shanxi stands with the architectural tradition. But um, could you expand a bit more on, on the notion of confronting domicide that, that comes out in your, in your research? Um, thanks. Yeah, I mean, so the notion of domicide, I was more familiar with from the real estate and commercial developments that are happening in southeastern uh, China, in the areas that develop very rapidly, very quickly, where real estate prices are soaring. You have such situations as in Shenzhen, where you have uh, villages in the city and so forth, where the local government, in order to foster development, will um, allow for you know very rapid real estate uh, and commercial housing to go up and they have to relocate a lot of people who are often living in single or two-story um, um, housing there and I thought well actually that is a process that is happening in the countryside as well in the sense that uh, local governments have an interest in um, fostering development and that it's justified in terms of a of, of the general good of the population and that people then become dislocated and displaced. Um, and in contrast to say in the urban setting where there's often a, a promise of, um, of accumulation and incremental value happening from, from the uh, real estate um market prices that are already occurring. In, in, in Shanxi, it seems to me that there had to be um, a form of devaluation that went concurrently with this, saying that these things were not worth as much as, as um, people locally might claim that they are in order to allow for the uh, relocation to occur and in order for the um, compensation packages to be negotiated and so forth. So that's kind of how I came to this conception of domicide. But then, um, as you can actually see in the book, it's not, I, I also don't think of it as a single moment that's happened uh, in the wake of the market reforms in China. But that actually, when you push back historically, and this came very much through the interviews that I was leading with families, you see that actually there's a much longer trajectory of um, dislocation and dispossession that people narrate when they talk about why they live where they live and who they belong to and why they belong to that place. And um, I'm thinking here of um, both the the uh, period um, under Gen Shishan, under the the, the warlord um, that um, controlled uh, Shanxi. Um, in the Republican era um, and the kind of taxations that he did, but also the, the sort of local um, lineage structures so and so forth, and also um, property ownership that meant that people were um, moved, uh, moved around uh, forcibly, um, forced mobility uh, for all things, of, all sorts of aspects, such as adoption, marriage, but also labor. Um, and simultaneously, um, 
they uh, they still manage to, you know, build up notions of home through their work, through their labor. And that you see this particularly strongly with the women who, um, despite marrying into another lineage, would um, bear and raise children and therefore create their sense of belonging to a new home and a new place. And that then there, again, that you had a sort of another period of domicide or rupture in the uh, 1950s as uh, housing was relocated. And for many people, this was quite an alienating experience. I mean, you had the, the class labels that were attached to them and um, people were, um, the houses, the courtyards, which were these grand courtyard complexes that used to belong to merchants, were separated into various bays. And then uh, people who were considered particularly deserving were given um, access to prime real estate in the village. So you had people like Red Army veterans, um, former communist spies against the Guomindang, or um, even uh, local men who fought with the um, uh, sorry, with the local Red Army forces, or 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 um, uh, became party members uh, early on, and they were often living alongside people who had been classified as former landowners or um, even their servants and de other dependents. And this kind of led to a very interesting uh, period of negotiation as well, where people had to. Um, sort of uh, accommodate each other and their very divergent life paths under these new conditions. And um, and then, of course, as I, as I um, have focused on so far in the interview, this period from the 1980s onwards, as certain processes of industrialization and now even deindustrialization have again meant that people have to reorient their uh, lives and their uh, locale. Um, and become to a certain extent also um, uh, relocated. And this led me also to this idea that the the home is really not necessarily just uh, an architectural feature or physical structure, but very much entangled with people's um, emotional and affective ties and the way that they co-substantiate each other as persons, but also um, the their relationship to to the land, to the landscape, to the region more generally. Yeah, absolutely, and that comes out so that comes out so beautifully in part two of your of your book um, in the ethnographic descriptions of family gatherings and celebrations that you that you that you write about and that you took part in. Um, and here in part two, you focus more about on gender, generational divides and kinship patterns in, in Sweeping Cliff and the, and the people that you worked with. Um, is this something that you could, could this be something that you that you tell our, our audiences a bit more about? How do um, these themes play out in the making of homes? So just now you mentioned briefly gender. Um, could you please expand a bit on that? So, so the audience here hears a bit more on, on how you write about um gender, kin, and generational divides in part two of your book? So I think that's very much the case, that people use these experiences where they come together and the stakes it, that they have, you know, in terms of belonging to each other and um, the stakes that they have over objects and things such as houses, but also um, other forms of um, material wealth become really uh, um spectacularized uh, in front of audiences. And I think that's something that I really enjoyed um, 
observing and also discussing with people at these family gatherings from uh, weddings and funerals towards the more um, unusual anthropological ritual of children's birthday parties. Um, and I think for me, what was very interesting there was to not just focus on the political economy perspective on value. I mean, in the strictest Marxist sense, that would even be um, you know, surplus um, labor value. But to think about value and sort of competing uh, regimes of value that, that coexist. So you also have these kind of affective and ethical forms of attachment and um, forms of value that, that become implicated in these processes. And the, uh, the way that I uh, conceptualized that was, of course, on the one hand, the notion of jia, which is the house, home, and family, thereby sort of bridging as a concept in Chinese um, the idea of a location, um, a uh, place, and the, per the people that one belongs to. And thinking about how this is entangled with I notions of work, labor, and care. And um, here I really um, was following my informants, following people in the village in terms of the way that they would uh, discuss family and kinship, as well as notions of gender and generation um, as a form of mutual support and mutual cooperation that really involved labor that would sustain one another. And I mean, on the one hand, there's this political economy side that actually nicely dovetails with the effective and ethical dimension. So the idea that the jia is not just a local phenomenon, but can be scaled all the way up to the Chinese nation. So you have the guajia, the, 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 the country home, the country or nation home, which is, um, which is the, the, the entire nation, but that you have um, both ideas about uh, belonging, about competing value, including the competing value of persons, as well as um, moments where there are actually um, violent ruptures and exclusions that happen around um, who belongs. And I think one of the uh, one of my uh, um, favorite um, topics, because it was a bit more um, cheerful and playful than than some of the other uh, dynamics I observed in the village, were the, the presence of these children's birthday parties, where you actually found um, different generations and genders of people trying to uh, show that they were belong to or that the offspring belong to them. And of course, this, you know, ties in nicely with the family planning policy, where you have increasingly just one grandchild to two parents and four grandparents. And when they have these big festivities, the way that they try to spectacularize who belongs to them, and uh, where the lines of belonging uh, fall, and that you actually find, um, particularly with um, maternal grandmothers and women that in contrast to this you know classic notion of Chinese kinship completely focused on the patriline, there are these other um, uh, forms of creating ties between women that are being sort of not just um, 
um, not just uh, reinstantiated at these birthday parties, but really uh, put on the central stage and really celebrated uh, in a big way. While sometimes you'll even find that the lineage elders are sort of inside the home doing their um, ancestral worship while while women and their and their mothers are outside in the courtyard in front of all these onlookers showing that they uh, belong to one another also through these um, maternal ties. So these are the kind of um, micro-political maneuverings that you see in terms of who belongs to whom, uh, who is allowed to claim uh, what from whom, and so forth. Um, as, as, as the um, demographic changes, but also uh, political economic changes, uh, interact with people's affective and emotional conceptions of value and uh, belonging. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Oh, that's really fantastic, and um, it really does come out in in your writing. This no, this um, this notion, which is relatively um, kind of common sense in anthropology, that that kinship and relations, you know, requires work, requires it's a social reproduction rather than something that you're just born into, and um, it's it you know the the excitement of these birthday parties really does come out in your writing and the pictures that you provide of these grandsons with the with the qualia the the round bread the rath, rath bread that they you know these pictures you have of this this these adorable round grandsons and then the massive um, bread that's that kind of um, that the grand grandmother is is holding up but you also really do a fantastic job at kind of um, you know, tracing which which grandmother is present. So, is it the maternal or the or the paternal grandmother? And um, you know, just now you were talking about this kind of this performance they put on to claim to claim this kind of access to that that um, grandchild really comes out through your writing. Um, that's something I should have asked maybe at the beginning of the of this recording, but um, you mentioned in your book just now because I was talking. I'm talking about these pictures that you have in your. In your um, in your book itself, these pictures that you've taken during your field work, and you do mention at the beginning of claiming homes that that the that the your interlocutors, the, the people that you befriended, um, kind of well, if, if I understood correctly, they were kind of grown close. They grew closer to you once you once they realized your photography skills. So that must have been really a merit that you brought to your field work, and um, they must have really appreciated that you did document these these really quite lavish and and fantastic family gatherings. Yeah, that was definitely um, one of my ways in was through the playing the role of the village photographer. So sometimes I would be invited to events, and then almost as an offhand aside, they'd say, "But make sure you bring your camera." <laughs> <laughs> particularly because this kind of um, this form of the snapshot, I mean, people were using their mobile phones to do that, but most people didn't actually have cameras to take um, good photographs of um, spontaneous events. So, um, yeah, having a having a good camera for that and then also generally going around to people's houses afterwards, 
bringing these photographs, but also yeah. then using the photographs to ask a couple of questions about who was this again and what was what was going on here was actually an incredibly helpful tool. Absolutely. The home. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think in your in your final chapter, if we move on to the last part, part three of your book, in your final chapter, you really expand more on these kind of online forums and the technology that allowed for communication beyond um, this kind of location where you were based in Shanxi. Um, and it also just adds so much more depth to people who aren't anthropologists who are listening to this um, to this podcast. Um it reminds the reader and, and listeners now that there's so much more depth to the role of ethnographer, that the levels of access that, that you are able to obtain through your research, both kind of in a very um, personal, intimate level with the rural citizens, but then also um, kind of going beyond that to understand conversations online. And of course, your conversations with government officials and, and um, you know, um, Chinese citizens of different ranking who are all come together in this location of the of the sweeping cliff um so my my um question about part three um refers more to the themes of labor location and precarity that you draw on in, in part three of your book and your final chapter um starts with the description of the panic of an approaching earthquake and it's really gripping to read um because basically you are and the people around you are suddenly in this state of emergency and you write about this fear that settles both you settles across both you and the wider population and what i really enjoyed about this was that you were able to look at this context of the panic of an earthquake as a direct confrontation um, to reconsider um, the more people around you were reconsidering and voicing concerns about the state's role and guaranteeing housing safety for its citizens and you, so therefore, you're looking at the panic kind of as a window to understand a much wider distrust that Chinese people share towards the government's limitations to care for its people in a state of emergency. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about that event. How did the people you lived with and befriended in Shanxi respond to this false alarm of disaster that came close to placing your lives at a very serious threat? Um, thanks. Uh, yeah, that was a very dramatic uh, moment. Um, this was during the New Year's period in 2010 when everybody, um, all migrants were back home in their rural and urban families and so forth. And we really had a very um, uh, dramatic event where this, uh, I was in, uh, staying with a friend in the city overnight and her mother came in really at 3 a.m. or something and, and woke us up and said, an earthquake is coming, get out of bed, uh, be ready um, for when the, the building collapses. And the entire uh, city was kind of abuzz with people taking emergency warnings into their own hands. So people were setting off leftover firecrackers and, and um, fireworks from, from the New Year's period. People were honking, uh, sirens were going off. Um, and there was also uh, not just that kind of um, <laughs> soundscape of emergency, but there was also simultaneously a lot of um, uh, phone calls being made. People were on online messaging boards spreading information and so forth. And this real fear that 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 gripped the entire locale to the point that a neighbor um, from the village told me that her, her uncle, who's a mountain shepherd, who was out, up in the mountains with his sheep overnight, 
was uh, was alerted to this on foot by another neighbor. And people actually started moving from the city um, in the dead of night with their cars and on foot up into the villages and so forth because they became so uh, fearful that this had happened, uh, that then an earthquake was going to come. And I think um, it did really very much speak to these um, general ideas about um, the limits of the government's capacity to care for the people in an emergency and sort of wider distrust in the credibility of both official and unofficial forms of information. And um, I mean, on the one hand, this is something to do with the way that, you know, new events, crisis events emerge in which there is no past event that compares directly. So forms of prediction become extremely hard. And you have this kind of almost prophetic idea, these, these prophecies that of what is to come start to start to emerge. But also people look, grasp at any form of information, um, uh, especially sort of horizontal forms of information from people that they trust. Uh, and and this was sort of very much alive during this moment. And the way that the government clamped down on the distribution of information through unofficial channels unfolded also uh, led to certain um, uh, conspiracy theories, I would even say, that this was actually a government experiment because there had been some uh, tests uh, at uh, fire stations and um, and also at uh, um, local hospitals to prepare for the possibility of an earthquake, as well as um, the way that the government responded by then saying, oh, well, it wasn't these, uh, these official tests. Um, that's just rumors. And then they went and found online bloggers and said that these people in the Internet had spread rumors and thereby sort of um, tried to discredit sort of people-to-people -people, mm, information sharing and so forth. And actually, on people's mobile phones, there was also a government um, uh, message that said, you know, people don't have the, the right to share um, information that's not about earthquakes that's not accredited by the official um, um, earthquake uh, bureau. So all of these issues sort of came together around ideas about this uh, this particular region having um, faced a lot of um, devaluation and dispossession that wasn't really being recognized by the government and that this played out in the field of reproduction. And I think for many people, their homes, their housing is one of those places where they most experience that um, that that form of dispossession and devaluation in terms of reproduction, because it's it's so central to personal continuity. And um, I mean, I think there are certain parallels that we now also see emerging with with COVID nineteen and the way that um, people try to strive to make sense of a situation of crisis. Um, by interacting with official and governmental forms of information, but also by um, taking matters into their own hands and spreading communication in ways that um, that uh, uh, allow them to find their own pathways in a kind of disaster or crisis situation.
Yeah, thank you. That's really, um, really fascinating to, to listen listen to you. And just as you were talking, this the number of parallels um, that 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 I think our listeners could could pull on what's ha- what's been happening um, in, in obviously um, China, but also outside of China in relation to, to COVID nineteen. But um, I wanted to um, to conclude our conversation to move closer to your current work, which also, to my understanding, looks at this this um, looks at a crisis, but of a very different kind, the environmental crisis. Um, and I'm aware that you're studying themes on environment and ecological transformation in China in your postdoctoral research as part of the Frontlines of Value project at the University of Bergen. And um, even in your in the in your Claiming Homes book. Um, which which was conducted, the fieldwork was conducted 10 years ago, if I'm not mistaken, you're already um, writing about pollution. And there's several moments in your in your chapters where you refer to this kind of stifling pollution that lures over the landscape of Sweeping Cliff. So um, obviously the context of Shanxi and, and the kind of industrial development in the region, um, you were talking to people and probably experiencing this kind of environmental degradation. But perhaps um, I should let you talk um, talk more about this rather than me telling you um, what my interpretations of the book. Um, could you talk a bit more about your research, recent research? And in particular, how do you perceive, perceive the transition from studying homes and domicide in rural China to focusing on the environment? Um, thanks. Yeah, I mean, so, so the the current research really builds on uh, environmental concerns that were very much present in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and in subsequent years, but were very much not explicitly and discursively addressed. So one of the things that I found in Shanxi was that people had a whole host of um, everyday practices and um, even habits uh, that were unspoken that, for instance, tried to reduce the inhalation of dust because they knew it was so um, dangerous. And another element um, that um, I sort of observed or participated in in terms of um, my fieldwork in in the earlier periods were also the way that people uh, understood the um, devaluation of industrial labor and the sort of reproductive risks that went around the physical collapsing of mines, as well as mining closures and the loss of labor from that. So that kind of already set up this this issue, this programmatic of people um, having the risk of environmental degradation and the the kind of um, health consequences that that carried with it, as well as um, the parallel fear of further um, devaluation of their labor and uh, dispossession of their means of production. And I think those things really came together um, for me during the, the, the years following fieldwork and, and it started to sort of coalesce into a much stronger motivation to look at environmental uh, crisis in China, as well as the um, solutions that people are trying to find uh, across the country. and. Um, uh, on the one hand, I, I, I uh, return regularly to Shanxi to uh, discuss these issues there, and particularly through the reorient- reorientation of the energy and mining sector and the attempts to create this low-carbon civilization um, 
in the region uh, through things that are already in the Claiming Homes book, like tourism development and other forms of deindustrialization, investment into real estate and so forth. But also, um, I've been looking at a number of broader policy changes that are happening at the um, at the uh, higher up levels of the state in China, and particularly Xi Jinping's promises to instantiate an ecological civilization through promoting low carbon life, and what this means for citizens on the ground, and how there are also um, local projects that try to uh, live up to these um, aspirations. So I've I've done fieldwork with uh, foresters in Fujian who are planting trees in order to um, integrate into the local carbon market, as well as some of the uh, mobile phone-based solutions through the planting of e-trees that happens. Um, so the most uh, prominent of these is uh, provided by Alipay, which has a number of um, which sorry which has a which has a large number of um, users throughout China, of course. And the thing is, what many people don't realize is that in in addition to having a credit and a cash account, every user is also issued with a carbon account, and this carbon account actually allows people to accumulate carbon savings and then a small virtual tree plants that they can then have actually planted in the desert. And I've also gone on field work uh, in Gansu where people are actually planting these trees in the desert and, but also trace these chains back to um, um, uh, friends that I have back in Shanxi. So uh, a friend who, who works at a coal washing station and um, sought from me, actual evidence that these trees were being planted in Gansu, um, you know, that I should take pictures, ideally of her very own trees and, and send them back to her and so forth. And the way that these new um, material technological changes are coalescing with un understandings about crisis and people's capacities to facilitate change in China are really central to what I've been doing um, more recently. Uh, but yes, it very strongly comes from this uh, experience that I had in Shanxi as one of the, um, as a region that, you know, experienced uh, a kind of heroic position as the vanguard of industrialization through its role in the energy policy, and has subsequently been recast as a place that relies on outmoded forms of heavy industry and the polluting forms of coal in order to drive development. And what that does, um, you know, both in terms of the, the understandings that people in Shanxi have of themselves, but also how these kinds of um, inside and outside perspectives on a, a place from Shanxi all the way up to China and even, you know, humanity as a whole in terms of this environmental crisis play out. Um, so yeah, I definitely see that there's, there's continuity, although I'm, I'm hoping that I'm sort of moving on and developing also some, some new approaches. Um, you mentioned that there's um, the, the, the front lines of value group that I'm part of at the university of Bergen. And I think that's something that's very much um, analytically and theoretically 
been very, very helpful for me um, is working with a group and talking about different forms of value that are emerging. I mean, something that was already in the book um, was uh, bringing together ideas about production and reproduction, particularly from a Marxist uh, understanding with ideas of uh, kinship and belonging and even sort of ritual studies and religion and so forth. And I think that's something that has, um, in my work more recently, become more theoretically crystallized around this concept of value and how we can connect forms of political and economic value and also devaluation and dispossession that happen, particularly around reproductive work, with these broader dynamics of um, uh, affect, um, experience, of um, uh, emotional ties, and these sort of um, uh, ideas about even um, the way that, for instance, during a time of crisis, a, a certain sensibility or mood can take hold, both in terms of a locale or in terms of um, a group of people, or even as we've seen now with this global crisis in the, in the last few months, um, can even take on a, a sort of sweeping character that actually goes around the world, also partly facilitated by the um, technological and material forms of connection that we're now able to make across vast distances. So, yes, I see that there's kind of a, um, uh, a pathway that I've been following and I'm sort of hoping to pursue and deepen in the coming years. Thank you, Charlotte. It's um, so fascinating just now as you were talking. I can definitely see those continui continuities. That, and it's really fantastic to hear how much you're expanding um, from, from all the research and everything you've learned that form, that's formed formed in your books, uh, in your book, Claiming Homes, Confronting Domicide in Rural China. And just to hear that you're able to now really expand on that and expand on your own knowledge and contribute both to theoretical and but also so social conversations, because these are just such intriguing, but more importantly, timely themes that you're looking into. And I imagine um, the listeners of this show really look forward to hearing more about how your, how your current research unfolds and, and where it will take you. Um, for now, I want to thank you for putting this time aside and talking to me and um, talking about your book, Claiming Homes, and um, talking about your work. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've learned so much, and um, I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you, Charlotte, and um, I look forward to hearing more about your research. Great. Thank you so much, Sylvie. I also really enjoyed this, and it was a pleasure talking to you too. And um, sort of revisiting and delving into um, these uh, experiences and, and elements and, and so forth that I put forward in writing. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Bye.